Oi, oi, I'm Jimmy Bullard and this is me old muck of Venus. We're back together, son. How are you? Hi, Bully. Great to be back working with you. What are we doing here, though? We're starting a football club in podcast form. The only thing we know, it's called FC Bullard. After that, it's all up for grabs. So, we haven't got any players, we haven't got a kit, we haven't got a club badge, we haven't got a stadium. Correct. FC Bullard. Welcome to the club. This is a crowd podcast. This episode is sponsored by the pharmacist, Dan Lloyd. To be more like Dan, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Marler Show, become an official sponsor and grow the show today. You're listening to The Marler Show. It isn't on the radio. It's a podcast, fool. You listen anywhere you go. The Joe Marler Show. Hello and welcome to our show. I'm Joe Marler and this is Tom Fordyce. Nice to see you, Joe. It is the month of December. At school, which role did you have in the nativity? Joseph. You were quite a big part. Sorry, there's a lot of surprise in my voice there. Well, that was my name. I wasn't any... I, th- oh, I think I was a wise man once. That's not bad. Yeah. Better than a sheep. Were you in the nativity? Did they do the nativity? Was Christianity invented? <laughs> <laughs> the very first one I was in, Joe, I was the innkeeper. If you could choose any role now, if you could go back in time, which role would you choose? Narrator. Would you? Yeah. With your inability to read a single line of script? Irrelevant, because I would be there going, and in comes Mary. <laughs> That's not the narrator, that's stage directions. In came Mary. Better. In came Joseph. <laughs> In came the three wise men. Mary was had a round bump. And she was she was pregnant and it but unfortunately it wasn't Joseph's. <laughs> this caused some slight aggro between them two. And pop! Out came Jesus. <laughs> and if you're sitting there thinking, this really doesn't make sense, then you would be completely right because there's no such thing as God. It's a striking version of the the nativity. If I had any feedback, it would be that you haven't left a great deal of room for any other characters to do anything. I was just giving you a little bit of a gist of how it would go, that I'd probably try and slip in some atheist beliefs, actually. Well, I'd put in some question marks over, really? Did three kings of Orientar really travel across the <laughs> desert on these camels with just one box of gold, one box of myrrh, and one box of what was the other thing? Frankincense. Frankincense. What the fuck is frankincense? It's a bit of a weird gift for a newborn, isn't it? Yeah, but it did that really happen? So there'd be some question marks in there to just try and get a little bit more detail to the real story. Well, if you are putting on a nativity play this December and you're looking for a narrator... Get in touch with us in all the usual podcast places. We may have a solution. Right. If you would like to support the show, you can, of course, subscribe on Apple, Spotify and Patreon for £1 a week. You can get... See if Joe can remember this. Ding, ling, 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 ling. Bonus content. Ding, ling, 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 ling. Ad-free longer episodes. Ding, ling, 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 ling. You can also listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. Quite like that one. That was good. I basically keep Amazon alive these days anyway. Like the amount I order off of it. So 
you're welcome. <laughs> Joe, Christmas is, of course, coming up. We have some Christmas merch. Still got some left? I think so. Okay. We sold a lot of bubble hats last year. They're back on sale. Yeah, and we've got some socks too. What about the tickets to the live tour? Have we got any left? Very good point, Joe. If you would like to come and watch the Joe Marler Show live, you can still buy tickets to our live tour later this year. Click the link in the episode description or search for the Joe Marler Show live tour. Yeah, and be quick because they're going like hot shit off a knife. <laughs> they're going like sh- sh- hot shit off a knife. Does shit move quicker if it's hot? Why are you putting shit on a knife? Well, if you buy a ticket to the live show, I'll tell you all about why shit goes hot off a knife. Our guest today is Matt, and he is a criminologist. Hello, Matt. Hi there. How are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Did you expect our criminologist to start with a chuckle, Joe? No, I didn't. I'm not sure whether that's a, a good thing. Or is it... A- I'm a very good-humoured... Indiv- you have to be studying this subject, right? Well, tell us more about this subject, Matt, because Joe and I have been speculating exactly what a criminologist does. Was it speculation? Or was it... It wasn't accurate, was it? <laughs> we thought it was someone that uh, is a, a criminal who gets things. So uh-huh. like you're a oh. criminal that just oh. gets the gist of things. Right. Criminologist. When Joe well, says we thought that, what, <laughs> what Joe actually means. Please put Matt. us straight. What is a criminologist? Well, if it wasn't a criminologist, it would be a criminal, I guess, would be a good answer to okay. that in some ways. Because you kind of, it's all about trying to figure out why people commit crimes and how they do it and how they do it successfully, you know. So it's it's kind of, it's a bit like a forensic psychologist to some extent, but it's it's much more focused on macro things. So like societies, groups of individuals, as opposed to, sort of specific individuals like serial killers. We don't tend to go into that kind of really juicy, terrifying stuff where you try to understand the personality and the drives of a serial killer. It's more about societal crime problems. So, for example, in my case, it's hate crime. You know, why do we have hate crime? Why does it plague society? Is there more of it in this country than, say, America or or Greece or whatever else? And, And then try to understand from a sort of a societal perspective how you can stop it, in a sense, or how you try to, you know, reduce the amount of, of hate crime. So it's, it, it sounds very different to a detective. Yeah, I nothing you might be like that. Like that sort of, oh, I, have you got a badge? I wanted to be a cop. Oh. I, I did my, uh, my degree in criminology, uh, my master's, thinking I wanted to become a cop. But then I learned during that master's how policing was rife with homophobia, a bit of racism at the time. You know, Stephen Lawrence was around the time I did my my master's and I thought, maybe that's not the best place for a gay man um, <laughs> to, to spend his whole career. So I kind of segued into the academic thing. Let's try and do a little list then, if you can uh, help us here, Matt, of the things that make people commit crimes. So specifically hate crime, I think, would probably be where my expertise lies primarily. There's lots of different theoretical sort of explanations for why people commit crimes, but specifically hate. I guess it starts with prejudice, and we're all prejudiced. There's no point trying to convince somebody that you're not. The reason for that is we all grow up in culture, right? We can't escape the culture we grow up in. So, like for me, uh, I grew up in the 80s in the Welsh Valleys. My dad is a rugby referee, and it was a very masculine environment, and I knew pretty early on, sort of 10, 11, that I was a, I like men as opposed to girls and didn't quite understand what that meant. But ultimately, I grew up in that culture which kind of told me that being gay was wrong, 
Okay, so the press headlines. Section 28 was introduced by the Thatcher government, which basically told teachers that they couldn't talk about homosexual family relationships or relationships to kids because it would be promoting alternative ways of living that are, in their perspective, wrong. As I grew up in that culture, I couldn't actually talk Margaret to Margaret Thatcher's government yeah. bought in Section 28. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's a twat. Well, yeah. Is she alive? No. She was a no. twat. Yeah. <laughs> what the fucking fuck? <laughs> that was also supported by vast chunks of the mainstream media as well. It was. At that time. I remember seeing the, on my birthday, the Daily Mail headline referencing it. And as a kid, you know, looking at it thinking, well, gays must be bad. Right. And I mean, the point I'm trying to get at is that growing up in that culture with all that stuff going on around me and of course the HIV AIDS epidemic, which was terrifying, the adverts that we saw on television, we just struck the fear of God into you. Right. Then you see the tombstone ad. Do you remember that? Oh my. I mean, that for a kid, you know, that was like nuclear annihilation kind of adverts that you got. Those things that really got you. So I was terrified of the whole prospect of being gay in this town, rugby, masculinity, mining, you know. And ultimately, I just thought to myself, well, I can't do this. I can't do this. And in many ways, all that cultural sort of feed got into my brain. And I had what I can only describe now as internalized homophobia. I would avoid gay people for fear of them because I knew I was gay myself. But now, after coming out and, and, and getting beyond all that, I've deprogrammed my brain and I recognize that I had internalized homophobia. But I, I recognize that in myself now. And that ultimately means that, you know, it's entirely possible for the majority of people who grow up in a certain kind of culture to have prejudices. They may not realize they actually have. And in psychology, we call it uh, an implicit prejudice or an unconscious prejudice. And if we all have unconscious prejudices towards maybe gay people, women, short people, fat people, whoever, whatever it might be, it doesn't take much to layer on top of that to get to something like hatred. Did you experience hate crime yourself as a gay man? Yeah, I did. Yes. That was a huge moment in my life, actually, because... It was back in the 1990s. I just finished my degree in sociology at Cardiff Uni. Came to London to celebrate with friends who had also passed their degrees. We went to a club on Tottenham Court Road, a gay bar. So I was in the club with my mates. I stepped outside for a cigarette and I sat there in the, standing there, I should say, uh, basking in the sunshine. And then this guy came over to me and asked me for a light. And I was like, all right, fine, here's, here we go. Here's a light. No problem, mate. And then everything went black. The eyes opened and I just looked up and I looked around me and I was on the floor. And I was like, what the? Then I had this kind of metallic tang in the mouth. I was like, and then split. I was like, geez, I'd just been hit. And I looked up and the three guys now, the one had turned into three, two mates had come over and they were laughing at me. And I was like, what the? And I didn't you know, completely dazed, didn't know what quite had happened. And as they, I kind of laid still, I didn't want to cause any kind of more damage. So I kind of said, nothing. I just kind of thought, right, let's just kind of quell this where it is i don't know what's happened but they walked away and then they said it they called me a homophobic slur i don't want to say it on the show because i don't like the word it's the f word and i was like oh shit i've been a victim of a hate crime bloody hell that completely changed my life number one because at the time i felt that the state wasn't protecting me because there was no 
hate crime law protecting gay people at that point in time. That came in in 2001. In 1998, the laws were passed following Stephen Lawrence to protect black and brown people from a, an array of kind of criminal acts. And if you, if you were found guilty of one, you'd get extra sentence. You'd get, you'd get extra punishment if you were found that your crime was motivated by hostility towards someone's race. Didn't exist for any other characteristic back then. Since then, it's all changed. But then I felt completely unprotected by the state, you know, the country I was living in. Um, so I didn't re report it to the police. And, you know, as many as 50% of hate crimes don't go reported to the police for lots of different reasons, but a big one of them is people don't trust the police so much, unfortunately. It's changed a lot. But back then, the effect on me was, was huge. I, I don't know if it was PTSD, I don't know what it was, but I, you know, even to this day, I get anxious holding my partner's, my husband's hand. I, we don't do it because we don't want to draw attention to ourselves. Partly for me, it's because of that incident. You know, I don't want to be in that situation again. And so all these questions filled my head, so much so that I had to do something about it. And that was when I changed my, my mind on doing a degree in journalism. What happened to me struck me as so sort of fundamental and, and shook me so much that I did my degree in criminology instead. We're not born prejudiced, are we? We don't, we're not born with those no. emotions to immediately go, I don't like you because you look a certain way or I don't like you because you like certain people. You learn that from the environment around you. You, you right. learn because you grew up in that environment. That's and, right. And the same way that it's not in the same way, it's completely, it sounds actually trivial when you say it. But if my daughter or my son sees that I hate broccoli and I'm constantly going, mate, broccoli is disgusting, and I'm constantly saying that over and over, they'll be like, yeah, I hate broccoli. Broccoli's yeah. shit. I'm not eating that because... They're learning from so it's a it's a learn. It the prejudice is the learned behaviour, isn't it, or the learned understanding? And that's the good news. I mean, that said, I'm always asked the question: you know, is hate innate? Is it hardwired? It's not. You do learn it from culture, but there are parts of our brains and our and our hormonal makeup that predispose us to preferring people we think are like us. And this is through evolution that this has occurred. So if you think about the multiple different types of, of human-like species throughout time and where Homo sapiens championed and we, we won. We're very good at that because we cooperated better than any other species, ultimately. We are social beings. Human beings go mad if they don't actually have social interaction with other human beings. And that's because of evolution. And high cooperation and very effective cooperation throughout history meant that we basically dominated our planet you know, completely dominated our planet. For the worse, I'd say right now with the climate change, etc. But it's because of that super cooperative spirit that we have that's ingrained in our biology, in our brains, that we are so successful. But there's a darker side to it. Left alone on its own, it's absolutely fine. You cooperate well with people you think are like you. But as soon as a member of an outgroup comes close, and that could be anything, an outgroup could be different gender, different race, it could be just a different sports team, right? As soon as an outgroup enters the mix and they seem slightly threatening in some way, that preference for your in-group can be weaponized and turned against the outgroup. Okay, and that's where we start to see prejudice. But what that outgroup is varies massively. Currently, we see it as race, sexual orientation, transgender identity, etc. Back in hunter-gatherer times, because of the limits of migration, there was no difference in skin color between tribes that encountered each other. There was just difference in location and so on. So the difference of the in-group and outgroup back then was something completely different to what we might see today and perceive of what an in-group and out-group is. But under all those really kind of threatening conditions, 
our brains basically grew. And we have a part of the brain called the amygdala, which is like a little nutty structure at the base of our brain. We have two of them. Uh, and they are responsible for processing threat and fear. Whoa. And it is a remarkable part of the brain. It's one of the first parts of the brain that evolved. It's precisely designed to keep us alive. We are super threat-detecting machines because of it. Um, back in the days of hunter-gatherers, you know, when we had saber-toothed cats, environmental disasters, storms, marauding tribes, that was our number one defense mechanism, the amygdala. It's so powerful, in fact, that it has a direct link to the optic nerve, which means that we see threats before the rest of our brain can even process what we're seeing. Before you even know what you're looking at, if it's a toaster or a face, the amygdala will, in a flash, milliseconds Sorry, process. Sorry, a toaster or, a, or face. a face? That's just a crazy example. <laughs> it's from the book, but I, it's, it's, that's the only example I have. It, it's, the amygdala does, it's, it's, it's fast but dumb, okay? The amygdala is fast oh. but ah. dumb. You've had teammates right. like that, haven't you? <laughs> I'm glad we went with teammates, thank you. <laughs> But You've never been that fast. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but the problem with being fast but dumb is that you get these really fast fight-or-flight responses, right? So you get this, I'm going to throw my spear at this saber-toothed cat or I'm going to run the other way. And we've all felt that kind of fight-or-flight response. And the amygdala is responsible for initiating that. The blood pumps, the adrenaline pumps. You, you feel superhuman. The strength increases. We've all heard those crazy examples where people lift cars off, off bodies after car crashes. You know, that's, that's the amygdala affecting your whole physiology. And it's a very very powerful influence. But interestingly, it's also known to activate when white people look at black faces in brain scanners. What? Which is Why? terrifying. One of the very first brain scanning exercises in this space was to find out if what parts of the brain processed hate and prejudice. What's the brain doing? You know, even though we know that culture's to blame for turning a person prejudiced, what happens in the brain when, when they come up against what they perceive as a, a threat of some kind? So they put a bunch of white people in these fMRI scans. You you've probably been in an MRI scanner for lots of different reasons. They put you in and they show you black and white faces, uh, just flash them in front of the participants. And basically, uh, every white participant in the study said, I'm not prejudiced, I'm pro-black. They did a little test outside the scanner called the implicit association test, which is this test that uh, gets around direct questions of asking you racist or not. It, it's all about how quickly you press your keys on a keyboard and the black and white faces and good and bad words. It tells uh, the experiment whether or not a person might be a bit prejudiced or pro-black or pro-white. Pro and the results came back and the folks that said that they were pro-white and had a black face flashed in front of them, their amygdala light lit up like a Christmas tree. They were processing that black face's threat, some form of threat. Now, whether or not that translates into prejudice is, is we're not sure. But what they found through subsequent studies after that was that the amygdala will process different color faces very differently for some people. Did they do a reverse test with black people and white faces? They did. And what was the result? The same. And that's, and that's, not and that's culture. And that's not based on no. the fact that they're generally prejudiced or starting to think that it was, well, that's how your brain's reacting because of what you've been involved in in terms of your culture upbringing yeah. where you surround yourself with the same yeah. people, the same people yeah. that look like you because that's what we naturally do. Absolutely. And then it's just an automatic response of someone yeah. who's different. You're like, oh, yeah. even if you don't want it to be, you're, you're all automatically feeling that. But a really important point to make is that we have more than just the amygdala in our brains. We have what's also called the prefrontal cortex, this bit right here. That bit evolved after 
the amygdala, but it's way, way smarter than the amygdala. It's where all the decision-making executive control, it's like, the, it's like the cockpit. And when the amygdala makes a kind of quick snap judgment that might be like slightly racist kind of threat interpretation, all of a sudden, if you're motivated not to be prejudiced, you don't want to look prejudiced, it's uncool to be prejudiced in the culture or the uh, group of friends that you're with, the prefrontal cortex will put the brakes on. It'll say, no, 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 stand down, red alert. That's not appropriate, what you've just done there. So do we know, Matt, do we know roughly how many hate crimes there are in this country a year? Latest estimate was 150,000 recorded what? by the police. But what might surprise you to know is that in America, 7,500. What? In the same period. How bizarre is that? What? Yeah. How? Exactly. They it, don't report? It's a question, yeah, exactly. It's a question of... What are they counting and who's reporting it? And in the United States, as you understand, there are big problems between minority communities and policing. But ultimately, it all comes down to what laws are in place, uh, who's aware of them, and who feels comfortable reporting any kind of hate to the police. So, for example, in the US, after fatal shootings of black men by police officers, white police officers, the reporting rate from black communities plummets for all crime, including hate. So the, essentially what you're seeing is this complete destruction of the relationship between certainly black communities and policing in the US. So this difference, this huge difference in statistics is all about what are they counting, who's reporting it, etc. Uh, we have the highest rate in the whole world of hate crime, but we are not the most racist country on the planet or the most homophobic country. Is that a combination of our ability to record and our ability to report? It is. And the, the best. It is. It's a good sign in a sense because the community is engaging with the police. You know, the community is engaging with the police in a way that other communities don't in other countries. So that's a really good sign. But nonetheless, the police figures are incredibly high. The top category is race. And for the first time ever, the second highest category, around about 27%, is trans hate crime for the first time ever, which is quite shocking, actually. So why is that happening? Why is that happened in the last few years, and if you are one of those people doing the hating, why are you doing the hating? What we understand from the academic perspective is that we're going through what we call a civilizing process in relation to transgender identity and the rights of trans people. We've got, we went through the civilizing process with the black community, civil rights in the 60s. We did it with Stonewall, etc., with LGBTQ. We've done it with women's liberation. We've been through those movements of recognition quite some time ago now. And what those movements of recognition have meant is that we all learn in society it's, it's socially unacceptable to be racist, homophobic, uh, sexist, etc. I think we're currently in the midst of the civilizing process in relation to trans identity. And it's being fought out right in front of our eyes on Twitter, for example, and it's ugly. I firmly stand up for, for trans rights. I see in many ways what LGBT folks went through many years ago, you know, with the victimization, the, the skyrocketing uh, hate crime figures, etc., is, is happening with the trans community right now. And most of this crime, most of it's public order offenses. So it's folks being uh, shouted at in the streets, shouted at in public transport, pointed at, horrible slurs being thrown at them. Some of it's antisocial behavior. So it's neighbors being horrible to other neighbors. And it's a continuum. It's not a discrete event. It's not one-off. Most people suffer it multiple times in their life. And it's so debilitating because of that. And some of it's incredibly violent. Um, so in the US, for example, there's a lot of murders of trans people, in particular black trans people in the United States, and it's horrific. It's like an epidemic. 
please help me understand this a bit better. How does it go from the sort of societal, cultural upbringing that you have, where the subconscious prejudices that you have, how does it go from those to then stepping up to... Hate. Hate. I'm going to go from... Yeah. Actually, Tom, you're from Nutsford, and that's not Heathfield, so you're an outsider to me. And instead of just recognising that, and then the frontal lobe, yeah. whatever, it takes over and goes... You're an outsider, I recognise that, That's it. but it's all right, you're just a bloke, it's fine, here you go, yeah, our jobs are good. And to then, fuck off, you're from Nutsford, I'm I'm now gunning for you, you piece of shit. Yeah, what, yeah. How does it jump from that to that? So, so, so far I've talked about what I consider um, push behaviours. You push things away that you don't like. So prejudice and high prejudice results in these kind of pushing away. You avoid certain people, you cross the road if a person coming towards you looks a bit different from you and you have some kind of sense of threat from them. You avoid social situations and so on and so forth because you're anxious about meeting someone different from you. They're all push bit. You push people away. Hate is about pulling people towards you. Think about Nazi Germany and the extermination of Jews and the amount of money they spent on that where they could have put that towards the war effort, right? And But there they was a, this irrational kind of obsession with the destruction of a, of, a, of a particular people. That's a pull behavior. So there's a big jump between the push and the pull behaviors, and hate is definitely in that pull category. A lot has to happen to get someone from high prejudice to hate. In the book, I call them accelerants. So each accelerant you add to the fire, that tinderbox that you have, the more likelihood hate will erupt. One of the very big things that we've seen recently are trigger events. So these are events like uh, political events, terror attacks, even sporting tournaments that can result in the expression of prejudice, either on in social media, or tweets or posts on Facebook, or people going taking to the streets and actually saying something to a person or say on public transport. And basically what these events do is release prejudice that people have had in them that were routinely suppressing. So for a short period of time, an event like Brexit, the Brexit vote, which saw around 1,100 more hate crimes occur, if we, took it, if we took that event away, if we took the vote away, those hate crimes would not have happened. Events like that galvanize certain kinds of prejudices and, and push them over there. So basically, in those moments, people who have deep frustrations about certain individuals or groups that they might not express in public places, feel for a short period of time, oh, I can now express that opinion because you've just been attacked by an ISIS terror group. I can now express that opinion because the half the country have just decided to leave Europe because they don't like immigrants. It releases the prejudice in some people, not everyone, otherwise we'd see like, way more than 150,000 hate crimes, but it releases the prejudice in those who have high prejudice. There's lots of other things too. So, for example, algorithms on social media. The nature of social media and the engagement algorithms that work on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube push the most extreme content in your direction because it'll keep you engaged for longer. What keeps you glued more than anything else? Extreme content. And what kind of extreme content are we talking about? Hate content. Polarizing content. How is it allowed to happen then? What is that? What the fuck? Well, when it came to sort of terrorist content, so ISIS-based content, that stuff was quickly regulated and it was removed pretty sharpish. The same isn't happening for sort of right-wing, far-right-wing content. The, the reaction to it is a lot more lackluster, um, partly because of this you know, freedom of speech provisions in the United States. You know, there's a really strong kind of drive, sort of absolutist kind of position like Musk has right now, which basically means anything can go on his platform. And 
They operate primarily in America. A lot of their audience is American. The laws basically mean that they can get away with anything they want. They're not that regulated. In Europe, it's a slightly different picture. You can be regulated quite a bit in Europe, but only for what they call criminal hate speech. Which and the criminal hate speech on social media is really has to be really bad. But and we have to give us an example of the sort of thing so we can picture a sort of tweet that would fall into that category. So, for example, something that would be criminal would be something that was threatening and mentioned to say a race of a of the recipient. When it comes to legal but harmful, we found a lot of stuff after uh, the, the killing of Lee Rigby in Woolwich back in 2013 that said posts that contained words like, I told you they were all terrorists, send them all home. Now, there's nothing criminal about that phrase. There's no threat there. There's just an expression, an expression of a distasteful opinion. But nonetheless, it's, it's I would argue, damaging. It increases racial tensions. And the more and more you see of that stuff, the more and more is a likelihood of someone might take to the streets and do something. And we see this all the time. There is this unfortunate link between the legal but harmful stuff we see online and hate crimes increasing on the streets. One of our studies actually found that in London. The, the higher the amount of racist and tweets in a particular area, a week or two later, uh, hate crimes would, would increase too. Should we have a little breather there, Joe, for some adverts? A lot for us to process? No. <laughs> you want to keep going? Yeah, all right. I'll come back after. Shrink the Box is back for a brand new season. This is the podcast where we put our favourite fictional TV characters into therapy. Join me, Ben Bailey-Smith, and our brand new psychotherapist, Namon Metaxas. Hi, Ben. Yes, this season we're going to be putting the likes of Tommy from Peaky Blinders, Cersei from Game of Thrones on the couch to learn why their behaviour creates so much drama. So make sure you press the follow button to get new episodes as soon as they land on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Shrink the Box is a Sony Music Entertainment original podcast. What about some of the more high-profile criminals in the world? What yeah. what are the ones that you've looked at or studied, or, ha- or have you looked at and studied? Well, there was on? there was one called um, Joseph Paul Franklin, and he was this really horrible character. And I, I talk about him in the book because I delve into his history to try and understand what possibly could have explained his his crimes. Basically, his crimes were as follows. He basically did a tour of the United States, visited like six or seven states with his sniper rifle and would sort of stake out parks, public parks, would identify black men primarily, but also uh, black men who would be with white women. He, He had this horrible prejudice where black men were dating white women and he would shoot them and kill them. And he went on a rampage for months. He killed 30 people, I think, mostly black men, some black women. And he was eventually caught for his crimes, I think, near Salt Lake City, um, after he killed two men uh, who were running in a park with two white girls. He went to prison and was, 10 years ago now, was put to death. But at the end of his sentence, he actually said something along the lines of, I see the error of my ways now. It was the way I was brought up that made me the way I was. I regret doing what I did. I was like, what the hell? did you go through as a kid? And I kind of wanted to dig into his, his life. And it was horrific. His family were very dysfunctional, more than sort of average dysfunction. Lots of alcohol. The father couldn't hold on a job. The mother was a massive disciplinarian. 
Her family were originally from Nazi Germany, so there was lots of memorabilia of, of, of Nazis in the household. She would starve her kids. She had two or three brothers or sisters. The discipline she exercised on them was horrific. For example, you know, they, they, if he was eating funny, she'd just slap him across the head routinely every single day. The malnutrition was severe. Um, basically, his brother and sister ended up going into hospital and, and mental institutions throughout their lives, possibly why they didn't go and commit any of these types of crimes. He, on the other hand, never went down that route. He actually left the home, but then found comfort and, and solace and welcome in the far right uh, the KKK and other organizations in America, they welcomed him in and treated him with respect that he never got from his family. And they became a surrogate family for him. So he invested a lot of his sort of energy into those organizations. That's primarily potentially where that kind of behavior eventually came from. When when you were doing the research into, what was his name, the, the sniper, Joseph? Port Franklin, yeah. Port Franklin, I just noticed in your voice slightly a little, not maybe, maybe I was wrong, but getting to know his background and his history and to work out why he did what he did. Yeah. There was almost a small bit of sympathy in terms of, yeah. well, hang on, you've been yeah. nurtured into yeah. this and this is sort of the, the reason why. But there's loads of people out there that go through yeah. the same up, upbringings and the backgrounds yeah. thing, they but didn't do don't it. then cross yeah. over to go and shoot 30 different blokes. There is a missing ingredient, right? So it sounds frivolous to say it like this, but so you've got a, a cake, right? You've got all the, you know what went into the cake, etc. But ultimately, trying to deconstruct that cake once it's been baked is very difficult to do, and that's a bit like trying to understand human behaviour. You will always, always be something either in the ingredients or the process of making that cake that you'll miss out. And the science that we have right now still isn't good enough to identify precisely the reasons why someone does. It's the holy grail of behavioural science, figuring out precisely why someone's done something in that moment in time. What you do when you, you kind of delve into these people's histories is you humanise them. Right. Most people don't want to humanize a horrendous criminal, certainly not a serial killer, right? Um, you've got the Jeffrey Dahmer series on Netflix right now, right? We watched that. Of course we did. Fucking yeah, it's, right, yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, yeah. Have you seen it, Tom? It's too dark for me. It's incredibly dark. We'll put the yeah. brightness up. <laughs> bad game. Very bad. Sorry. But even the first yeah. episode, Jesus oh, Christ, yeah. it's like squeaky bum, like the whole... But he's someone who... Science has never literally looked inside his head. Is that right? With Jeffrey Dahmer's brain, was it not? Oh, there was some talk of donation, wasn't there, of the brain? I and mean, even if they did, they wouldn't find it. I mean, usually when this is done, what you end up finding is the brain's normal. You know, there's no lesion. There's no, there's no lesion in the amygdala. There's no kind of tumour pressing on the insula that would change their behaviour. So how does that, as a criminologist, how does that make you feel? It confirms that criminology was the right thing for me to do to study crime because it's mostly social. You know, it's mostly culture. It's mostly social. It's mostly psychological. And it, it's not necessarily part of your biology as such. There are cases where, for example, uh, a lesion of the brain will turn you into something a bit different, you know, it will increase your propensity to kill someone. Um, there are stories like that out there. But for the most part, for the volume crimes, it's nothing to do with brain that has a defect in it or something. But you, know, you look into the pasts of these criminals, you think, well, that's a horrible, there's horrible things that have happened to you. And when you layer these horrible things malnutrition, neglect, 
trauma after trauma after trauma that's unresolved because your parents aren't there to contain the pain. You know, when you're a kid and you scraise your knee, the first thing your parent says is, don't worry, the pain's going to go away. It's all right. If you didn't have a parent telling you that, you'd, you'd never think that pain would go away. It sounds like a weird thing to say, but that's called containment, right? If you don't have parents around you telling you stuff like that throughout your life, you, you can't psychologically cope with what life throws at you. You know, and, and what happens when you're growing up as a kid is that you're being shaped to be a responsible adult. What's happening is that your parents or your carers are giving you the mental machinery to deal with life in, in life stresses. So I, I think a, a huge thing for me is kids and education. If you get kids early enough, give them the stability they need, give them the education they need, mix them as much as possible with many, as many different people as you can, you'll see a, a drop in prejudice and a drop in hate crime later down the line. And I mentioned the brain study at the beginning, right? You put kids in brain scanners who've been in mixed schools with lots of black kids, lots of white kids, their amygdala doesn't flash at all when they are presented with the black face in that scanner. It's easier said than done. If oh, it is. I'm, I'm brought up in a rural East Sussex town and there's a, there's, I grow up family across the road, there's only one black yeah. family in, in the area and that's, it, do you know yeah. what I mean? It's like unless you go to a big oh, yeah. city or brought, brought, yeah. brought up in a big city where you can mix your kids and start, the, it's going to yeah. take a long time yeah. down the road for these prejudices, yeah. whether it's race homophobia, gender, to, yeah. to sort of change unless you're constantly exposed on a, on a day-to-day basis with, with your kids. I wrote in the book about my experience growing up in a very white Welsh town. Went to a university in the 90s. There was not one black student in my sociology degree in the 90s, which is insane. That was South Wales for you at the time. And I, w- I put myself in a brain scanner. And what happened when I saw black faces? My amygdala lit up. Did it? Yeah. And it freaked me out. It really freaked me out because I was like, I'm not racist. And they're like, well, do you know what's happening there? I said, well, where did you grow up? What, who did you mix with as a kid? Do you have any black friends right now? I'm a handful, but I don't see them on a regular basis. They, you know, your amygdala has learnt from your, your cultural upbringing. This is what your prefrontal cortex quickly shut it down within milliseconds. And it's just fascinating how the brain actually works, but also fascinating how it can change and you can actually change how the brain functions. So you can, in theory, you can cure criminality. Um, So put it this way, it's very hard for human beings to hurt each other. It's not within our our makeup to do that. There's a study in World War II of how many of um, American and British soldiers shot their weapons. Only around about 20 to 30% of soldiers shot their weapons, and a lot of them purposefully missed their targets. This is an amazing study, right? 20 to 30%. But 20 to 30% shot their weapons, and most of those Missed. deliberately Weren't avoided for, like, human targets and would hit artillery instead. And this was obviously a nightmare for the generals. They were like, well, this, this, this war could have been over much quicker if they'd actually be... Sh-. And don't forget, these were like... You lo- are you sure they weren't just really shit at aiming? <laughs> well, it's entirely possible. <laughs> there needs to be a different but, yeah. study into this <laughs> exactly. one. But basically what, what, what the study showed was that, you know, of the... You know, we had conscription, so there's just kids going over, right? They weren't trained as much as, as the, the army are these days. But, you know, they didn't want to kill other people, even though they were Germans. You had that uh, incredible, you know, Christmas story with... The, the, yeah. The, yeah, 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 everyone knows that, because yeah, the scenes yeah, yeah, yeah. had or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Basically, the the animosity that the the nations had against each other wasn't replicated on the on the battlefield as much. That was completely turned around by Vietnam, where around eighty percent of the soldiers 
are targeted their human subjects. Why? Because the the um, American British armies introduced psychological training, and they went through things, and this is one of the key ones, dehumanization. You dehumanize a human, they're easier to kill. If you think of a person as not human, but rather vermin, a cockroach of some description, it's easy to kill them. And this is always a prerequisite for genocide, right? You cannot exterminate a whole people without actually thinking about them as less than human. And this dehumanization process is insidious, it's evil, but it's been proved in scientific studies over and over again. You need to undo that if you're trying to get a criminal to come around from thinking about a group like that. And what you do, you rehumanize. Sounds straightforward, right? But you basically get the criminal and the victim in the same room. It's called restorative justice. So if they both agree to be in the same room, you get them in this, in this, in this situation, and then the victim tells the perpetrator the effect of the crime on them. And all of a sudden, the perpetrator is like this. In, in, in most cases, not, it doesn't work always, but in most cases, the perpetrator starts seeing them as a human being. And, and you can't, this feeling of empathy that we have and the feeling of sh and shame, which is a master emotion, shame is the best regulator of behavior. When you feel shame, it, it feels like it physically hurts. When that's induced in those rehabilitative sessions, you see massive changes in the perpetrator. This episode is sponsored by the following magnificent people. The Cyclone, Edward Dyson, Red Rory Herring, Yada Wizard Harry, Hoxley, Paul Evergreenough, Megatron, Megan Wood, He's so, so quiet. Shh, shh, it's Gareth Burke. Double A, Al Allen, the influencer Jade Ingram, Easy Peasy Matthews, No Nonsense Neil Morgan, and Magic Maggie Vidovitz. Joe Galvin and Stacey, The Lynchpin Lynchy, Windy Rhino, Dave Wiley Fox, and the long arm of Alistair Blacklaws. To be more like all of them, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Show, become an official sponsor, get bonus content, and grow the show today. Twas the night before Christmas, and Santa and Elf were still processing last-minute requests. Hello, Santa. Oh, have we finished yet? Nearly. Oh, fuck, he's got another list. This one's just come in, Santa. It's from a listener to the Joe Marler Show. <laughs> the hit podcast? I've heard it's excellent. So what are they asking for? They would like a ticket to the Joe Marler Show live at a London Palladium. Now, where can we get one of those, Santa? Oh, the, the link is in the episode description. Great tick. They also want a Joe Marler Show bubble hat. Where do we keep those? The link is in the episode description. <sighs> tick number two. Uh, finally, they would like one pair of Joe Marler Show socks. <sighs> Guess what? Right, so all the links for live show tickets, bubble hats and socks are in the episode description. That makes it really easy. Uh, it's a good system. I've been doing this for a while now. You're the best, Santa. I am, Elf. Why don't you get two of those London Palladium tickets for you and Mrs. Elf? Um, Mrs. Elf has left me, Santa. Oh, dear. Yeah, she says I work too hard. Awkward. You could come with me, though, Santa. Fuck. How am I going to get out of this? Elf stares longingly into Santa's eyes, trying to capture the magic of Christmas. When is it? 
April. Fuck, I've got no excuse. And neither have you, dear listener. The Joe Marler Show, live at the London Palladium. Tickets on sale now, because you've got nothing better to do. Okay, okay, I'll come. I'll, I'll come with you. Yay, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Santa. But because it's the Palladium, and I hear their first live show was very good, not because I like you more than any other of the elves. It'll be our little secret, Santa. God, I hate secret Santa. If you had the choice, Matt, and this is a personal question, but linking together what we've just been talking about there with what we were talking about at the start, if it were possible to sit down with the three men who attacked you outside that club, Mm. would you do so? Yeah, I would. What would you say to them? I talk at the very end of the book, I talk about this and about when I first started the book, I was like, I I really want to delve into. Well, I first started my career, I should say, after they attacked me. I really wanted to find out something that was really concrete that divided them from me like you know these these people are so different from me for some reason that they did that to me i would never do that you know and i wanted there to be some kind of almost some kind of biological or neuroscientific reason for it right what i ended up finding out at the end of the at the end of the whole journey was that there was so much more we had in common that that, that, that separated us like well everything we had in common our biology our our, our physiology was pretty much the same because we're we're all human so none of that could explain really what was going on in that in that moment all that could separate us is is their upbringing potentially you know there's something i don't know what their upbringing was and i'd love to know but whatever happened to them leading to that point i mean i i called it when they attacked me it was a bit like the gamification of hate because they were waiting outside that club they knew what they were going to do. It wasn't a crime of opportunity. It was planned. And ultimately, I'm thinking, they just had a different life to me. So their experiences leading up to that point were different from me. But if my experiences were anything like this, I could have been doing the hating. And that's what I kind of... That tipping point, that kind of difference we think is between us and the, and the terrible criminal, is, it can be very slight. can be very slight. I'm going to ask you a personal one, Joe. Sport has often been homophobic. So when you were a kid growing up in rugby... Did you see much homophobia there? And how do you feel about the way you may or may not have reacted to it? Growing up in rugby, or growing up in general, the casual homophobia was just commonplace. You know, oh, that's gay, that's gay, oh, that's so shit, you're gay or something. It was just the norm. And it was never called out, so it was was like, of course, being gay is weird and all that, and that's what everyone else is saying around me, so that's what I'll go with and then rugby even more so because again it goes to that macho environment you go Christ you know can't can't be seen as gay or do anything gay or anything gay at all because it's like that's not what you need to be this stoic strong man and we shag women and you're like what the fuck is that about (laughs) and then even recently it was about three years ago a coach turned around to a player in a training session. He'd, he'd hit a he'd hit a um, a sausage. <laughs> really bad pun, actually. Um, <laughs> he tackle hit one bag. of those tackle bags badly, but he missed it or something. And the coach just lost his nut and called him a soft f word. Ah. To which the group sort of were like, "What?" And then 
one of the senior players turned around to the coach afterwards and said, you can't say that. He went, what? He said, you can't say what you just said. He said, what did I say? He said, you used the F word. And he said, what's wrong with that? I was calling it. I said, no, mate, that's not acceptable. He said, oh, right. And then it made him think. So it's a generational thing that yeah. immediately he was like, oh, right. And then it made him think. And I've had lots of conversations with, with people, friends and family around... And it goes back to a lot of what you've spoken about, your upbringing and the culture that you're brought up in and dependent on the people around you, their values towards race, gender, sexuality, all that lot, rubs off on you. And it's not until those generations... Because it's very hard to change these ingrained behaviours and opinions that they've had for 60, 70 years to a point. Mm. Until those, as morbid as it sounds, die or drop off and we focus our energy more on kids and the next generation and their understanding of mixing everyone and exposing them to everyone in the world so that you have a bit because you won't ever get rid of, rid of the natural prejudice that we have biologically because you do don't you it goes way back in well the in-group preference will always be there this notion that we want to be around people we think are like us is something that's you can't get rid of it um but you can you can reshape what your in-group looks like you know, by diversifying it, you know. And the thing about sport as well and what you just said about your, your upbringing and, and homophobia in sport, that can also change too. I mean, this is an amazing study I quote in the book about Mo Salah joining Liverpool Football Club in 2017. So he joined in the midst of a string of terror attacks. We had, we had Westminster, London Bridge, Manchester uh, Arena and hate crimes against Muslims across the country were the highest ever. I mean, it was the worst, worst year for anti-Muslim hate crime in a long time. Apart from Merseyside. And there was this amazing study that showed that Mo Salah joining Liverpool Football Club that year, performing so well, winning the Golden Boots and everything else, completely turned around hate crime perpetration in that part of the world. Whereas all around, it was skyrocketing. I just want to read something from the book here because it's a very short thing. This, this is one of the chants that the fans were singing in the stadium, but also uh, in the pubs. So this is your book called... Uh... This is the book called The Science of Hate, How Prejudice Becomes Hate and What We Can Do to Stop It. Thanks, for, thanks for the plug. Thank you. If he scores another few, then I'll be Muslim too. Yes, if he's good enough for you, he's good enough for me. Sitting in a mosque, that's where I want to be. This was being chanted up and down Merseyside, pubs, Round the stands of Anfield. Hang on, can you just give me the first line again? If he scores another few. If he scores another it's, few. It's, it's to the tune da, of good enough. Da, 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 that's it. That's it. Da, 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 that's it. Yeah, yeah. If that's he it. scores another few. I'll be Muslim too. Commit, man. Commit to it. <laughs> no, I'm a Welshman, I should be. I should be going. <laughs> oh, Lord, <laughs> get that, die, oh, that is Fascinating, like, yeah. I mean, unbelievable. And, you know, and Merseyside used to be one of the worst places for anti-Muslim hate crime, right? And also online, the tweets being sent, that anti-Muslim tweets also went down by 50%. That's insane. And the reason is Mo was basically very, very kind of publicly sort of displaying his Muslim identity. And what ended up happening was that he reversed a negative stereotype into a positive stereotype. And... It had a dramatic effect. It also makes you more aware that we all, not just people in the public eye, but we all have a responsibility yeah. 
to constantly work on changing that narrative of yeah. the way we talk, the way we yeah. casually think. Yeah. And as long as the conversations that you're having, because yeah. we're not going to get everything right 100% of the, of the time, are we? It, as long as the conversation, like there'll be transgenders and different genders that you, you get wrong or pronouns and all these. Oh, yeah. There's a fucking mountain of stuff to try and get... Navigate, yeah. ...your head mm. round and you will slip up and you will say something that you go, well, that's inappropriate. But as long as it's coming from a place of love and understanding, yeah. then, then we can move forward. So this has been a remarkable episode, hasn't it? Matt, you've been absolutely fascinating and insightful great. and... I've really enjoyed it. And just your book again, it's The Science of Hate. It's The Science of Hate, How Prejudice Becomes Hate and What We Can Do to Stop It. Brilliant. Matthew, thank you so much for coming on. Ah, pleasure, mate. Honestly, both of you. Thank you. Thanks, man. Well, Matt was a bit of a gear change from our usual (laughs) nonsense, wasn't it? Sometimes when we're chatting, Joe, and we never go, I hope we don't go for the easy laughs, but we look for the fun that we can find. And then sometimes the topics, you don't want to find some light that's artificial light. You're best off just going with the vibe of the conversation. That's what today felt like. I just thought it was great. It was really fascinating at times. I love the human mind and how it all works and how humans work, whether it's... We've got a big fascination with serial killers, like the whole Mm. Netflix situation they're inundated with the latest serial killer series because we are fascinated by how not necessarily the morbid stuff but just how the the human mind works and and also for matt to share his own personal story as, as to why he got into it he was great i love that one yeah joe i agree so this is your regular weekly reminder if you would like to support the show you can subscribe on apple spotify and patreon For a pound a week, you can get bonus content every episodes and at the very same time, Joe... You will be growing the show. And you can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Amazon Music! So, Joe, usually at this point on the podcast, you will ask me who our guest is on next week. Yeah? There is no guest next week because this is our last show of the year. We've been shut down. Been shut down. Well, it's lasted longer than I thought it would. Yeah. It's been a good run. All, all the best. Mm. Next time I'm in Nutsford, mm. unlikely to be there. I might pop by or drop you a text. You've never invited me to Heathfield in the two years we've been doing this podcast, so I won't expect an invitation. It's an open invite. Okay. No, in all seriousness, I'm glad we're not being shut down. That was a joke. <laughs> One of those shit Tom jokes. Made by Joe. It is, <laughs> <laughs> it is that time of year again to go... A, we survived another year, but lots has, lots has happened. We've had some good guests, haven't we? We've had some unbelievable guests this year. A lot of them listeners as well to come, come on the show again. Some slightly bigger named listeners as well, which is always fun to help grow the show, but also to see a different subject. I met Sam Thompson was just bonkers off the wall and your reaction to what reality TV is, being <laughs> geriatric that you are, was just phenomenal. But we can't forget the live show. Doing our first live one with all our like hardcore listeners, that was good fun. That was massive fun. And the fact that we're going to repeat that next year with our tour makes me very, very happy indeed. I just think it's been great, mate. I love doing it. I genuinely love doing it. And I hope we can continue for as long as possible and people still enjoy it as much as they did from the start. 
I am a little bit nervous about the continued live shows, though. As much as I loved the clap and grab. You were very nervous before I was like, like, shit. I did at least seven shits. I noticed. In an hour. Yeah. Because at one point you stopped going to the bathroom. You were just... Just on stage. Yeah. So if that chair is still there at the Clapham Grand, I'm sorry. I burnt it afterwards. I think I burnt it during it. <laughs> what other events happened to the show? We've got... Uh, We've got mic covers with your name and your face on. We're in our new studio. New though, studio. Which we love. Big step up for us. That's Purple great. lighting. Lovely lighting. Excellent lunch options. We managed somehow to ditch Steve, yeah. gain Ryan, which was possibly the biggest win we've had in the entire life cycle of the show. You're a nasty piece of work. <laughs> Steve is still very much part of the show in the back, back, background. But Ryan has been a lovely new addition, I think. It took me a little while to warm to him. You know how it is. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember some of the things he was saying about him in his first few months, and they were... Right, do you think it's appropriate me. to bring it up now? <laughs> <laughs> Trying to be nice? Some of the language was just... It was startling, if I'm honest. But it was good that you expressed your fear and your revulsion and then you moved on from it. Right. Revulsion. <laughs> as hard as that. No, I think it's been wonderful that Ryan's joined us. He's been a great new addition and uh, I think we're starting to build up a really good trust and rapport with Ryan. Well, here, Joe, let us raise our glasses to the year just gone and the year yet to come. Let's see what further adventures this show takes us on in 2023. Raising your glass doesn't make a sound. Let's put our glasses together having raised them Ah, that's nice. Cheers. See you next year. Bye. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Sports Social Podcast Network.